Good afternoon. Sorry for the late start, but uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, today, uh, our policy forum is about uh, prohibition. We've dubbed it Free to Booze, the 75th anniversary of the repeal of prohibition, which is obviously a, a little play on words on Milton's, uh, Milton Friedman's seminal work, Free to Choose. Um, but, you know, I think it's kind of indicative of the type of policy forum that we're going to have. A little bit of fun. We are, uh, of course, having a reception afterwards here. And uh, I think this probably this subject is uh, a little bit more lighthearted, perhaps, than, than some of our other policy forums. But, of course, this is also a very serious topic. When you look at the effects of prohibition on our society, on our economy, to some extent, they were very severe. And, uh, and even today, you see very significant impacts from, uh, from prohibition, era laws, from uh, the legacy and the mentality of prohibition that, that, that still perseveres today. So very ser serious subject matter, but we're going to have a little bit of fun with it as well. Let me, uh, before I introduce our first speaker, just give you a real quick overview of how things are going to work. Um, first of all, we are going to uh, have our, our first speaker talk about the history of prohibition. Then we're going to have our, uh, a panel discussion where we're going to talk about the legacy of prohibition, the laws that are still in the books today. And uh, after that, uh, in the part of the, the evening that maybe you guys are looking most forward to, we're going to have a very special reception upstairs in our winter garden. Um, first of all, let me introduce our, uh, our speaker on the history of prohibition, who is uh, Michael Lerner. He is the Associate Dean of Studies at the Bard High School Early College. Uh, he holds uh, a BA from Columbia and a PhD from New York University. And uh, as you might guess, he is a New Yorker. And uh, for the purposes of today, most importantly, he is the author of Dry Manhattan, Prohibition in New York City, which is an excellent book. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Uh, the glowing reviews include one from the New York Times, which says, Lerner's book is a serious work suggesting that there are still lessons to be learned from the 13 years, 10 months, and 18 days of a utopian American delusion. There remain a number of Americans today who are filled with similar angry visions, longing to make them law. And uh, I also wanted to read very briefly uh, the Washington Post review, or a segment of the Washington Post review, which I found very interesting. Lerner turns out to be exactly the right person to tell this story, and he tells it very well. Dry Manhattan is, in all important respects, exemplary, a singular, singularly useful and revealing contribution to our understanding of a time from which the nation probably will never recover. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Lerner. Thank you, Brandon, and uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out today. The fact that so many people show up uh, for an event like this shows that there really is a great deal of interest in prohibition today. It's still an issue that resonates. I think offering free drinks at the end also helps. Um, just I, I have to assure you, this is water. I'm not getting a head start on any of you. Um, so today is repeal day. Um, happy repeal day is, I think, what the uh, distillers would, would want me to say to you. I'm a little amused and perplexed with the uh, way that, that repeal day has sort of become a new marketing gimmick um, the uh, I think in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week it was referred to as Cinco de Drinco, um, and as I mean doers in particular seems to have taken the lead uh, in, the, in investing the most into this this repeal day theme uh, website drink recipes costumes I really should be wearing spats and a fedora if I was doing this right um, and there are dozens of repeal day celebrations going on all over the country which is fine um, as long as people understand the history of, of repeal. I just want to make sure that that's clear. I guess I'm, I'm the history guy today. Um, so at 5.32 p.m. on December 5th, 1933, Utah ratified the 21st Amendment, 
uh, and prohibition was repealed. Um, in contrast to, to the mood that seems to be promoted this year um, by bars and, and uh, brewers and distillers, it's actually a relatively sober and somber affair. Um, just keep in mind that when repeal... Uh, you know, I don't. It's not put on the books. It's taken off the books, I guess. But when repeal went into effect, uh, unemployment in the United States stood at 25 percent. Four thousand banks had failed that year. Um, Americans were definitely relieved to have the right to drink again, but they didn't all necessarily have a lot of money to drink with. Uh, and there was not a lot of liquor to be had either, um, because of prohibition. The supply of um, liquor in the country was actually uh, quite scarce. In New York City, for example, there were only 50 truckloads of liquor for the entire city um, on repeal day. It was going to take a while for the distilling industry to get back up on its feet. Um, People were getting rid of the old Prohibition-era stuff because it was bad stuff, and no one wanted to be drinking that now that they didn't have to. Um, And bars and hotels were all being very, very careful. No one wanted to screw up their chances to go legit by breaking the new laws on on the first day of the post-prohibition period. So no one was going to chance the the ability to get a a valuable and useful liquor license um, by by going astray of the new law. Also keep in mind that beer had been legal since April. Um, So people, you know, and that was actually quite festive occasion when when beer had been uh, re-legalized. So, you know, my... uh, my apologies to doers, but actually the whole affair on repeal day was rather dull. Um, most of the headlines are, are surprising in the way they reflect the quiet. Um, in fact, I, I think a, a great anecdote is that H.L. Uh, Mencken, who's always a wonderful person to turn to for anecdotes of the Prohibition era, said that he, had, he marked the moment by drinking a glass of water. He said it was the first glass of water he'd had in 13 years. <laughs> Um, so you may celebrate repeal day any way you wish, but if you get a hangover, don't blame it on history and say you were following a historical example. You, you were not. Um, but this is a very opportune time to think about and talk about history and its legacy and the lessons of the period. Um, I always think the first thing to do is bring everyone up to speed and make sure that people have a sense of, of the history um, and I will start with my, my very favorite brief version of the history of Prohibition. This was a, a poem written by the humorist Franklin P. Adams, which was published in the New York World in 1931. Uh, Prohibition is an awful flop. We like it. It can't stop what it's meant to stop. We like it. It's left a trail of graft and slime. It won't prohibit worth a dime. It's filled our land with vice and crime. Nevertheless, we're for it. So there you have it in eight, eight lines. I don't know why it took me 308 pages, but uh, this was a, a good, succinct um, observation of what Prohibition had done to the United States. What, what Adams was saying would have been pretty obvious to any reader in 1933. Uh, Prohibition was a flop. It wasn't working. It had never really worked. Um, even on its first day, it was clear that enforcing uh, prohibition was going to pose a real problem, uh, uh, an almost insurmountable challenge. It never stopped anyone who wanted to drink from drinking. Um, I think that's pretty clear from the history. And in fact, many people who had never drank before were drawn to it by the new allure of it. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be accurate to say it made millions of people lawbreakers because technically it was not illegal to drink, but it made millions of Americans accomplices in breaking the law because they were engaged in uh, aiding and abetting an illegal trade in liquor. 
It opened up a new world of organized crime, of official corruption. Uh, it swamped the court systems. It swamped the prison systems of America. It undermined respect for law and order throughout the United States and produced all sorts of violence and excess. Um, and, of course, the refrain that Adams ends with, uh, we like it, we like it, nevertheless we're for it, um, is his comment that even though it was so clearly not working and so clearly um, out of sync with what most Americans thought, uh, the federal government um, and the dry lobby stood behind it for 13 years. Um, when it was all over, the nation uh, commented it was the worst legislative mistake our country has ever made. And I think that that's a conclusion that I support fully. Um, so my purpose today is really just to offer a little bit of historical background before um, the other panelists, and I thought I'd stick to four main points. Uh, how did prohibition come about? What were the consequences of prohibition? How did the United States bring an end to prohibition? Uh, and why should we care about the history of prohibition today? So I'll start with the first, how did prohibition come about? And I'll give the briefest answer I can. Lobbyists. Um, and that's probably not the answer many people expect. Uh, you know, there, there tends to be a popular misconception that prohibition was the work um, of women temperance activists, uh, often depicted with a Bible in one hand and an axe in the other. Uh, Carrie Nation has sort of become the caricature of, of, that, of that movement. Um, you know, kind of a joke. These crazy old church leaders running around bashing up saloons and chopping up bottles and threatening people. It was a wonderful spectacle. Uh, not all that effective, um, and especially since it wasn't really happening in most of the major cities where Americans were drinking. This was really happening in the heartland. This is in Kansas, where most of Carrie Nation uh, is, and her followers were working. And Carrie Nation is dead by 1910. So clearly it is not just the work of women temperance activists that leads us to prohibition. Uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, very powerful force in American society, um, involved in a huge range of social and humanitarian causes, but not very powerful uh, in terms of their legislative um, weight, um, really not the, the force behind prohibition. Um, and again, the, the, the feeling that women were, were so caught up, this was so extreme that the brewing industry spent considerable sums trying to prevent women's suffrage, but of course prohibition went, to, went into effect uh, or was ratified before women got the vote. So we, we should be very clear that we cannot blame women for prohibition. Um, and in fact, in the end, we're going to give them credit for repealing it, but that's coming down the road. So anyway... Um, Really, who's behind this is a group of very skilled lobbyists who knew the law, who knew the legislative process, who knew the PR business, who knew marketing. They knew how to pressure lawmakers. They knew how to silence their opponents. Uh, they'd be very at home on K Street today. Um, and this group was the Anti-Saloon League. Um, they are the force behind prohibition. They were certainly building on things that had come before them, but it's really not until the Anti-Saloon League uh, materializes in, in the early 1900s and comes into its own in the early 1900s that the movement for prohibition becomes a real legislative movement. You know, you go from the, the moral suasion um, and the social pressure of, of women activists and other temperance activists to a legal movement, you know, a, a movement to put laws on the books. Um, the Anti-Saloon League and its supporters shared these core beliefs, that the liquor and brewing industries were corrupt and far too powerful, um, that the saloon was their primary agent for exerting influence and it had to be eliminated from American society, 
uh, and that the social fabric of the United States was being eroded because the cities were filling up with immigrants whose values, uh, including the use of alcohol, challenged the sensibility of how Americans should behave. There's a fair amount of overlap in these issues, um, and many Americans, especially in the progressive era, uh, were concerned about the things that the anti-saloon league raised, monopolies like the distillers um, industry, uh, corruption, the political corruption that was rooted in the urban saloon, uh, and immigration and the behavior of immigrants and the feeling that these people were not assimilating and did not fit in with uh, a more mainstream view of American morality. Uh, and so the Anti-Saloon League spent a decade or close to two decades building a coalition around these ideas. You didn't have to support all of them to be brought into, into their work. They did rely very heavily on the, the activism and the support of Protestant churches, but they were not a religious movement. Um, they really were a political movement, and, and their tactics really are the most important thing here. They knew how to go after politicians one by one, and either push them into the are you with us camp or are you against us camp. And if you were in the are you with us camp, you would be rewarded. And if you were in the against us camp, you would be punished severely. Politicians trembled at the fear of the anti-saloon league coming after them. Um, and they were very effective. Uh, this was never about building a democratic majority. This was about pressuring several hundred legislators uh, around the country to get the laws passed where they needed to be passed. This was a strategic chess game, in a sense. Move the country closer and closer to prohibition by drying up counties uh, and then states, and then finally, when the moment was right, move towards a national um, regulation. It was really a, a, a sort of divide-and-conquer uh, process. Um, why a constitutional amendment? Um, it, it's almost an, it, the Anti-Saloon League admitting that this is so ambitious, so extreme, that you need to have this in an amendment to make sure it lasts. Um, and it's no coincidence the final push for prohibition is happening in 1917, 1918. Um, there's going to be a census in 1920. And that census is going to show huge growth in cities, and it's going to theoretically, it didn't happen, but theoretically lead to a reapportionment in Congress that gives more political weight to the cities. So it's very important that this happen before that census take place. Um, so you push people, you get an amendment process going, and the one last thing that helps push this over the edge is World War I. And here the Anti-Saloon League was brilliant. Um, I don't think prohibition ever would have happened without World War I coming along. Uh, and it was an example of how lobbyists can use a war and the issues of national security and the issues of patriotism to advance an agenda. Uh, so they tied prohibition to the war effort. Prohibition became about conserving grain in a war-strapped nation. Uh, it became about conserving fuel. It became about uh, not giving soldiers who had the potential to let important secrets slip out uh, not giving them alcohol. You, you could not serve to soldiers in uniform. It was out pushing the idea of sacrifice. If soldiers are going off to war, then we should be able to stop drinking at certain hours or maybe even stop drinking altogether. So by pushing those issues and tying it to the war effort, the Anti-Saloon League brilliantly uh, and very effectively tied it to uh, you know, a sense of if you're not behind this, you are anti-American. And they could then demonize their opponents um, for being unpatriotic. Uh, and they do that by looking at brewers, who are German, and the Irish, who are saloon owners. 
you know, and we're not in support of fighting a war against uh, England or fighting a war with England, I'm sorry, um, and you tied it to Jews and Russians and Italians who were radicals. And you made all of those people look un-American, and you tied it also to the fact that they are all tied to alcohol consumption, and you sort of had a fusion of uh, anti-American you know, uh, accusation. And so the only way to be patriotic was to support prohibition. And again, the anti-saloon was very effective at promoting this, this idea. So just as the war is ending, they're able to, to, in a sense, get this over, most over the, the, you know, the goal post, over the goal line at the very end. Um, with a, something called, you know, wartime prohibition goes into effect after the war is over, but it's the the support for the war that really gets this um, to the end point. This is not democratic at all. This is actually a flaw uh, of the amendment process. And as much as the amendment process was meant to prevent any one faction from taking over and pushing through something that would oppress other interests, this is exactly what happened. And so the anti-Saloonian really showed us that there are loopholes in the constitutional process that can be exploited and can actually subvert uh, democracy. Um, The consequences of this, uh, there are dozens of them. Um, And I think uh, some of the most interesting and most important are the unintended ones, that the dry movement thought through the process to ratification and didn't think enough about what would come later. And what came later was exactly the opposite of what they had hoped for. Uh, Did drinking go away? No. Did it go down? Some statistics would suggest that it did briefly. I don't think you can find a reliable statistic uh, from the prohibition period. People who are breaking the law are not going to be forthcoming about how they're breaking it. Um, So the statistics from the prohibition era on drinking are really something to be looked at uh, skeptically. Um, Eventually, you do see clearly that arrests for drunkenness go up, uh, hospitalizations for cirrhosis goes up. So you do see over time that drinking is not going away in the country. Um, You get a whole new urban culture around drinking that that, uh, enhances the allure. And people who were less likely to drink before, uh, you know, so-called respectable people, were now drinking. Women were drinking more. Young people were drinking. And it becomes increasingly... um, cosmopolitan, I guess would be the word to describe it. And so this is something that people wanted to be a part of. Um, It creates a new illegal industry and a market. And again, as I mentioned earlier, organized crime takes off. Uh, Big bootleggers are making tens of millions of dollars a year. I think it's more significant the small-time bootleggers who got involved with this, grocers, tailors, florists, people who sold alcohol on the side just to make a little extra money to help pay the rent. And you had millions of people engaged in that kind of activity. Um, Congress was, of course, not willing to pay for enforcement. Um, it's always one of the big contradictions or paradoxes of, of this process. Um, the, the budget initially for prohibition enforcement was $2 million a year. Uh, by the end of the 1920s, it's up to $13 million a, where, a year. Either way, it's, it's, it's far below what was realistically needed to uh, put something this ambitious in place. I'll use New York as an example. Um, New York had 200 prohibition agents assigned to the entire state. Uh, they made $150 a month, and they were supposed to police, you know, 8 to 10 million people, uh, 10,000 to 100,000 speakeasies in New York City alone, uh, a Canadian border, uh, a Long Island coastline, 200 people were never going to do that. There was no way. Uh, on top of that, they're, they're making $150 a month, and they're coming up every day against people who are offering them hundreds, if not thousands of dollars 
to look the other way. And very clearly, the prohibition agency noticed um, people showing up for work with diamond rings, fur coats, new cars, things that there was no way they could have afforded on a prohibition agent salary. The courts are flooded. New York City sees a, a two- to three-year backlog of uh, prohibition cases clogging um, clogging the courts. Uh, small offenders, you weren't getting big people. You were getting the small-time offenders. And the plea bargain becomes a mainstay of federal judicial practice just to keep up with the process. Uh, violence on all sides of the debate. Uh, organized crime is generally restrained in places like New York. Chicago was seen as the most violent place, but they knew how to keep the peace if it meant making more money. Um, more remarkable is the police violence you see and prohibition agents running around town shooting up places, um, people abusing the power of a badge and a gun. The Coast Guard shooting and sinking ships off the coast um, because they're carrying liquor. Uh, some of it's done out of frustration. Some of it's done because they're involved in the trade. Uh, either way, it's, it's not what we'd want of, of our law enforcement agencies. Um, a crime wave comes about in the 1920s. Every major category of crime, homicide, disorderly conduct, drunk driving, assault and battery, theft, burglary, all up in the 1920s. It's not solely the cause of prohibition, but prohibition is a big part of it. And prohibition is basically undermining um, respect for law and order across the board. And, of course, when people have had a few drinks, they tend to do things they might not do otherwise. So the two are, are definitely related. Public health uh, issues. Um, alcohol abuse goes up. Alcohol poisoning becomes a serious problem. I've seen studies that showed samples of uh, confiscated liquor in New York showed upwards of 96% of it was tainted. So people are drinking poison basically. And some of that poison is put in liquor by the United States government to keep it from getting in the hands of bootleggers. Of course, they didn't care. They just redistilled it. Um, didn't get all of the poison out, but enough that they could pass it off and sell it to, to unsuspecting customers. Uh, even a budget effect. Um, New York State, again, my examples are from New York because that's where I've studied uh, this. But New York State lost 75% of its revenue when prohibition goes into effect because it was all coming from liquor taxes. Um, and licensing fees. And, and amazingly, no one had thought that through. Where was the revenue going to be replaced? There is the argument to be made that the passage of the 16th Amendment um, in 1913 that's going to allow federal income tax was something that the Dries greeted uh, op with open arms because now they had a place to replace the revenue of liquor taxes, at least on the federal level. So there's an interesting uh, connection to be made there. Um, so by the 19, end of the 1920s, this is a, a messy, sad affair. People are resigned that this is going to be the, the state of things for the foreseeable future because this is, after all, a constitutional amendment, and no amendment has ever been repealed at that point. Um, and people really are kind of perplexed. How in the world are we going to get out of this mess? Uh, even a sense that the world is laughing at us. You know, the United States had become the world's largest importer of cocktail shakers. Um, you know, not, not, not a, a, a badge of, of, of pride, I guess. Um, the only way you're going to, to do anything about this is through politics. And what you start to see uh, in the mid-1920s and then accelerating in the late 1920s is a political process moving slowly towards repeal, and it took courage. There were very few politicians, even in the late 20s, who were willing to stand up to the anti-Saloon League, but you did finally start to see them from both parties um, and it was kind of a race to see which party could grab the mantle of being the party of repeal. So you had real divisions in both parties. Um, finally, the group that really pushes this to the forefront is, is a group of women 
the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, uh, founded by Pauline Sabin. She'd been very active in the Republican Party in New York, very wealthy woman, um, and wanted to show American women that you could oppose prohibition and, and be respectable and you know, be classy in a sense, that, that, that opposing prohibition did not make you a loose, uh, immoral, uh, you know, questionable character, um, that you could actually make an argument that what, what, what taking this position did was actually, it was a stand for true temperance, that if you really were concerned about your family and your children and your husband, um, you, you couldn't stand to watch prohibition continue to do what it was doing to the United States. So uh, in a sense, this group, Wanper, um, beats the anti-saloon league at its own game. It, it becomes the lobbyist to out-lobby the earlier lobbyists and you know, taking many of the same tactics, PR stunts, modernizing them all, sort of retuning them for the social culture of the late 20s and early 30s rather than the progressive era. Um, but pushing both political parties towards uh, dealing with the question of repeal until finally 1932 comes around. Al Smith sort of paves the way in 1928. He loses the election but brings the repeal issue to the forefront. And then 1932 was really a referendum on prohibition. It's a referendum on the Depression as well, obviously. But but uh, the two issues really become intertwined. And you have Herbert Hoover as as the sort of de facto prohibition candidate because he won't come out against it. And Roosevelt, um, who waffled on this for a long time, but basically was pushed to be the repeal candidate and finally embraced that. And when he does, it's over, because by Roosevelt becoming the candidate who was going to do something about prohibition and do something about the Depression, even though no one knew what it was he was actually going to do, uh, he became the candidate who was in touch with people, who was listening to people. And Hoover was seen as more and more isolated um, and uh, you know, eventually irrelevant. Um, so you have these two forces, these two issues coming together in 1932. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I will hear and we'll probably talk a bit today about whether repeal was a repudiation of reform. But I think it is important to remember that at the same time as the country is repealing prohibition, they're doing this as part of the New Deal and, and the biggest big government guy we've seen in a century is the guy who ends up doing this. I mean, it's Roosevelt's first three major acts are the banking bill, the economy act to cut government spending, and the beer bill. So they really are tied together as the beginning of the New Deal. Um, so why should we care about this today? Well, you know, obviously there are lots of parallels. Abortion, gay marriage, smoking bans, trans fats, medical marijuana, narcotics laws – um, prohibition is sort of the mother of all of these. It's sort of the first culture war, I believe, in American, or at least in the 20th century. And I think it's important to be careful not to look for all of the answers in prohibition, but we can certainly look for lessons from prohibition, what works, what doesn't work, uh, the pitfalls and dangers when one group tries to determine what other groups are able to do and dictate morality, uh, and, and to always keep in mind the unintended consequences of something that comes out of a reform like prohibition. Um, so we have to be very wary not to be too black and white and too overly simplistic about these things, but there are many lessons, obviously, to learn in uh, prohibition. I think the foremost of them is to be careful with the Constitution, it's not an instrument uh, to take away individual rights. Um, it should be amended infrequently and carefully. Um, and it's also something that should make us think about reform. You know, what is the test for what kind of reforms we should have? When do they go too far? Um, what can we realistically do in the field of reform? 
Uh, and also it's a, it's a moment to recognize that there are many different viewpoints and cultures in this country. They don't always agree on, on, uh, on social mores, um, and we need to be tolerant and flexible, or we may wind up creating bigger problems than, than we think we have. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. And again, uh, I, w- I was looking again back to doers, and I, I still am very <laughs> uh, interested in this whole repeal day uh, marketing thing. But they, they suggested that we all make a toast to the Constitution today. And I was thinking, I'm not sure what part of the Constitution. Are we supposed to be toasting the part that we repealed or the part that, that you know, was very confusing? Um, but we should certainly commemorate repeal. And I, was, I would simply suggest that uh, we try to use this moment to remember to be uh, temperate in both our drinking habits and in our approach to amending the Constitution. I mean, I, I think we have time for a few questions now before the other panel starts. If anyone has it, yes. Can you hold on one second till we get the microphone? I'm sorry. Aiding and abetting a criminal institution or a company, whatever all the places that make the alcohol. Is that, was that a crime then, to aid and abet? Well, no, no one was going to be charged. I mean, it, I, I guess it's best to be more specific that, you know, no one was going to be charged with drinking. And, it, you know, if a club was raided, you, you, you left the patrons alone. I mean, there was nothing illegal or wrong. Well, wrong is, is the wrong word, but nothing illegal about having a drink in your hand or, or you know, even having one in your home. Um, you know, the amendment said you cannot manufacture, transport, or sell intoxicating beverages. Um, but, you know, there's no way that you can have that drink without being involved somehow in the criminal enterprise. So you could get – later in the Prohibition era, people did start to get brought in to testify. But for the first few years, that's kind of the big loophole that if you're not going to go after drinkers, you know, there's really no reason for anyone to take the law seriously. Yeah, Matt Thaxton with the Atlas Society. Um, thank you for your um, your, your honest uh, historical account. Um, uh, given that you identified lobbyists as the uh, sort of the underlying uh, impetus for this era, um, and setting aside the fact that um, uh, it at least was honest in the respect that. It took, a, it took an amendment to the Constitution for the federal government to assume those powers to regulate um, a substance. Uh, what is it about um, narcotics? Who are the lobbyists in the narcotics uh, era, area that have uh, managed to uh, make those substances illegal? Who are those lobbyists? I don't know if I'm the, I'm the right person to, to answer that. I think that's probably something that will, will be better left to our, our next speakers. Um, but, you know, it just it, – I, I only mean to suggest that we have to that, – that when we do something like this, you can't have regulations of this nature without knowing that, that there's popular support for them. Um, you know, again, and that's not to say that drug laws today are solely the product of lobbyists. I don't know that they are or aren't. But it's it's simply a, a request that we try to make sure that our our regulations don't get so out of touch with our social mores, especially because, simply because a lobbying group might push us in the direction. But I think I'm better to de- better to defer to our, our later speakers for that. 
Did uh, repeal – could repeal have had anything to do with the fact that the government needed uh, revenue and figured it would be better off taxing uh, right. the substance? When when the final push for repeal comes along, that is a very common argument that people make. Um, a lot of business magazines especially put this forward. Uh, I'd seen a big article um, in Fortune you know, saying if we can only – if we get the breweries back to work – and the distilleries back to work, and the trucking and the shipping and the bars and the restaurants back to work. This will put thousands of people back in jobs, uh, and it will increase tax revenue. And, and, and that's all true, but it really didn't have any significant effect on the Depression. So the argument was made, but it really didn't do much in the way of economic stimulus uh, for, you know, in terms of dealing with the Depression. But it certainly was a powerful argument to be made. in alcohol after prohibition. So now we have, uh, we have repeal, and mm-hmm. theoretically, of course, we're supposed to have a government of limited powers, and the second clause of the 21st Amendment turns the powers over to the state with subsequent abuses that we all know about. But what about the history of the federal role going forward? We have the BATF, now the TTB. Right. How, did that, how did the federal role develop historically? Well, I mean, again, I don't want to jump too far. I mean, my my you know my focus really is just the prohibition era, and then things that come after that are really out of my out of my jurisdiction, out of my league. But you know, you definitely do see in prohibition a massive expansion of federal law enforcement. I mean, the Bureau of Prohibition was larger than the FBI, um, even though it's too small for the task. It was startlingly big for the times. Um, but you know, then again, if you look back, I mean, the very first there, there's law enforcement and there's tax policy. Um, so the law enforcement side of this is definitely a, a big change, and to get the federal government involved this heavily in in policing people's behavior um, was a, a real shift. Um, and again, you know, so I think some of that comes from progressive mentality, but it's also the you know prohibition was the task in front of people. But you also had the Red Scare going on, and you had other other things that pushed for more federal law enforcement type activity. But then in terms of tax policy, let's go back and remember that the very first internal tax in the country is the whiskey tax. So this, you know, we, we had a long history of the federal government saying here's something that we can regulate and tax on a national level. So, I mean, where it go, obviously the, the enforcement stuff takes off from, from the prohibition period, and that, I guess, is the turning point. But, I, you know, what happens after that is really out of my expertise. When did Congress actually repeal the amendment? And um, secondly, I'm a little puzzled. How could um, Roosevelt get a beer bill through um, uh, legalizing beer before the amendment actually went into effect? The the a repeal amendment was actually submitted to Congress before Roosevelt took office. I mean, it was kind of everyone knew it was a lame duck session. Everyone knew Roosevelt was coming in, and this was part of the promise of the New Deal. And so Congress got to work and got the amendment started. Um, so, you know, that, that process actually predates Roosevelt taking office by a month or so. In terms of beer, um, and it's interesting, I didn't go into this at all, but, you know, there's the amendment and then there's the enforcement of the amendment. And the Volstead Act uh, was the federal law that defined what prohibition prohibited. It basically, by defining intoxication, if, if, the, if the amendment prohibits the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating beverages, the Volstead Act is what defines intoxicating. And it had taken a very strict definition of 
And so all Roosevelt had to do was amend that law, which was that's what the beer bill did. Basically, it said we are we're changing the definition to three point two percent. And that legalized beer. And again, back to your question about the revenue. I mean, the, the beer bill, as it was known popularly, was actually the Beer and Wine Revenue Act. So, you know, again, it's, it's about getting the economy on track, not getting beer back in people's hands. So people like the effect that it had. Take maybe just one more. Okay, one more. back. Uh, yeah, in the back, I guess. Is. Way in the back. Uh, hi. Um I'm Mike Talier. I blog for a lacrosse watchdog blog, a blog that I started. Um, I have a question, and it relates to um, a Cato review journal that I saw. And on the cover, it says bootleggers and Baptists. Um, and this one hit me because um, my dad's a Baptist minister. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure one of you two gentlemen can answer this question. Why did the bootleggers pick Baptists to to join up in this weird relationship that's going on. Are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with the paper. Bootleggers and Baptists is basically uh, the the Baptists are the moral force there. So that would be the the Women's Christians Temperance Union. They're not working together. Whereas the bootleggers, (laughs) right. The bootleggers are the ones that have the economic interests. So why marry the, why did the economic interests here being... The, the bootleggers want to uh, to couple with the Baptists in specific, I think, is, is what the gentleman's asking. So, it, 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 no matter what Baptist you are, independent, <laughs> I think Baptists were chosen as a, I think it was an, an observation more than a prescription there. I think they were looking at the Baptists happened to be the moral force in, in this particular example, I don't think by any stretch they're, they're picking on Baptists, but I think it's a, an observation about how regulation often comes about, and that is when you have the, the moral force, the, 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 the groundswell uh, from the populace mixed with an economic interest that can fund the lobbying efforts in, in Washington and elsewhere. You could say Methodists and bootleggers, but it wouldn't roll off the tongue as nicely. Yeah, alliteration's important. <laughs> okay, do we have you want to take one more quick one, one here? One, one more. The key feature of repeal is that it ended the federal prohibition on importation, manufacturing, and sale, Right, leaving the uh, states and local governments full authority to set the rules for drinking. Right. Absolutely. And, and you see a lot of very interesting variations. I mean, New York, uh, and, and it's going to take time for them to figure out what works and doesn't work. And I think some of them are still trying to figure out what works and doesn't work. I mean, my, just as an anecdote, my favorite was New York when, it re, you know, after repeal, the, the initial regulation was you could not consume a drink in a bar while standing. That was supposed to somehow make people more temperate. So that didn't last, obviously. But, you know, the states definitely have to go through this little trial and error before they figure out what's going to work for them. I think that's a a wonderful segue, actually, to our next panel. So thank you very much, Michael.
Bear with us just for a second here as we switch over. I'll note in the uh, in the interim here that if you're interested in, in obtaining a copy of Dry Manhattan, uh, Michael Lerner's book, we will have a few copies for sale upstairs uh, after the policy forum. So feel free to pick up a copy, and uh, he'll be on hand to, to sign those as well. Um, what, I, what I'll do now, we're going to go into a panel discussion, and the reason I said it segued nicely, uh, Bill's question there, is that a lot of the laws that have originated since prohibition governing the, the sale and distribution of alcohol uh, occur at the state level. Um, so that'll probably be the, the focus of a lot of what our panelists have to say here. Um, what I'm going to do is introduce all of our panelists in the, in, in the order in which they're going to speak, then I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to them, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude the, the forum with, uh, with a Q&A session. So to my far right, our first speaker, uh, your far left, will be Glenn Whitman. He's going to talk about the three-tier distribution system. Uh, Glenn is an associate professor of economics at Cal State Northridge. Um, interestingly enough, he's also currently writing for the TV series Fringe, which you can see on Fox. Check your local listings. Um, he holds a Ph.D. in economics from New York University. Um, and... He actually specializes in, in a number of areas, including healthcare. He's published a number of, uh, of articles for us on the topic of healthcare. In fact, he actually spoke at a policy forum right here just a few hours ago, so he's doing double duty today. For the purposes of today's or, or this afternoon's forum, um, I want to point out his book, Strange Brew, Strange Brew Alcohol and Government, Government Monopoly, which is really an, an excellent overview in, uh, and really more, more than just an overview. It looks at very in-depth at uh, – at the way state governments have created, have created distribution monopolies in the alcohol industry. Uh, our next speaker uh, after Glenn will be Ashish Agarwal, who's uh, to my immediate right. Uh, he served as the deputy assistant, uh, I'm sorry, the deputy assistant attorney general in the civil rights division of the U.S. Department of Justice. Prior to that, he served as the assistant director of the Federal Trade Commission's Office of Policy Planning. At the FTC, he authored, was the principal author of a report on the wine industry that was heavily cited in the Supreme Court case, uh, Granholm v. Heald. Um, he also co-authored uh, a paper called The Original Meaning of the 21st Amendment, which is a great piece. It looks at the history of the 21st Amendment and how it has been um, interpreted by some states and used to protect uh, uh, in-state interests. Uh, finally, we'll have Radley Balco. Uh, he's going to be talking about the neo-prohibition movement. Uh, he's a former policy analyst here at the Cato Institute and now a senior writer at, the, uh, at Reason Magazine, which is an excellent publication. He's also a biweekly columnist at Fox News. Uh, he's been published in a wide range of, uh, of different outlets, ranging from Playboy to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's also been cited in Supreme Court opinions, uh, helped get a guy off death row, and uh, testified before Congress a few times. Um, while he was at Cato, he, he authored an excellent study called uh, Backdoor to Prohibition, The New War on Social Drinking. And with that, we'll go ahead and turn things over to our first speaker, Dr. Whitten. So somehow, despite having done research on this topic and written a book and everything, I was completely unaware until I was invited to this event that December 5th was, in fact, repeal day. 
And it, it strikes me as a travesty that I didn't know that, that uh, more people didn't already know that. And I think it's about time we had another national holiday. And, and given the number of holidays that we already have that are officially only on Mondays, like Labor Day and Memorial Day, I think that this holiday should be the first in our history to always be on a Friday. Are you with me? Okay. So what I'm going to talk about is the aftermath of what came uh, from Prohibition and its repeal, because repeal was clearly a victory, but it also was not an unalloyed victory because it set the stage for a whole new era of alcohol regulation and prohibition that uh, took place primarily at the state level. When the 21st Amendment was passed in 1933, uh, prohibition was widely regarded as a failure. So the 21st Amendment was passed to end federal prohibition. But few people know about the second section of the 21st Amendment. The first section was the part that repealed the 18th Amendment. The second section said this. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. So in other words, the intent here was to guarantee essentially the federalist principle that states should be able to set their own policies. So we're getting rid of the federal prohibition policy. But if individual states wanted to regulate alcohol or indeed even keep it completely prohibited within their borders, this was meant to guarantee them the ability to do that. Now, what resulted from that? None of them actually banned alcohol entirely. None of them decided to continue prohibition on their own. 18 of the states became what we call control states, in which the state has a monopoly on the distribution and importation, and sometimes on retail sales of wine and spirits. So we have 18 control states. The remaining states are usually referred to as the licensed states, and those states left distribution and sales in the hands of the private sector, but then adopted a variety of regulatory schemes. And most of these regulatory schemes were designed to create and to entrench a three-tier system of distribution. And they were supported in this by the Federal Alcohol Act, which assists in maintaining that system mainly by preventing the suppliers of alcohol from having any kind of a controlling interest in the retailers of alcohol. So how does the three-tier system work? Well, on the first level, we have suppliers, by which we mean any kinds of makers of alcohol, brewers, vintners, distillers, and also importers of alcohol. On the second level, what we have are distributors, also known as retailers. All right, So they're the middlemen in the system. And there, then at the bottom, we have the retailers. That's the liquor stores, the grocery stores, the restaurants, and so on. So the people who are actually selling the alcohol directly to the consumer. And primarily what the system of regulations that was adopted at the time, mostly at the state level, was designed to do was to make sure that that middle layer existed, to put this distribution layer as a kind of a buffer between the suppliers of alcohol and the retailers of alcohol. So what do we get as a result of this? It, it's hard to talk about the regulation of alcohol in its entirety because of the fact that we really have a patchwork of laws, and every state has its own peculiar and idiosyncratic set of rules that it's created. But for the most part, what they do is they serve to entrench this system, and as a result, they kind of inflate that middle zone. They inflate the middleman role by guaranteeing them a place in the system. There's no way that anybody can go around them most of the time and deal directly with consumers or deal directly with retailers. Instead, if you're a maker of alcohol or an importer of alcohol, 
you must have some kind of a relationship with the distributor. Again, there are exceptions. For instance, if you go to California and you go to a winery, you'll be able to buy a bottle of wine for yourself, which you can take back home with you. So there are these exceptions, but for the most part, you have to have this structure. Now, why did they do that? Why did they want to have this three-tiered system for alcohol production and distribution? The intent, at least the alleged intent, was to prevent what they called tied houses, which were one of the things considered a scourge of the pre-prohibition era. What tied houses were were pubs or taverns that were owned also by the creator or the supplier of the alcohol. And the perception was that under that system, you had the suppliers being willing to adopt nefarious kinds of marketing tactics. And one of these marketing tactics was for the uh, taverns to offer free lunches to uh, workers who would then come there and consume a lot of alcohol in the process. And of course, these were salted pork sandwiches, so they'd get really thirsty, and supposedly they would end up spending their entire paychecks. And this, incidentally, as it happens, is the origin behind one of uh, economists' favorite sayings, there's no such thing as a free lunch. The idea is you weren't really getting a free lunch. They called it a free lunch, but you were paying for it through the price of alcohol. Now, uh, it's not entirely clear whether this justification uh, was correct or not. Uh, It is true that if you have a supplier owning a tavern, they're likely to engage in some amount of marketing in order to get people to buy more of their alcohol. Then again, that happens in the present day, even with a variety of alcohols. Anytime that you go to a bar and there's a happy hour or there are free peanuts, salted peanuts sitting there on the counter, they're doing fundamentally the same thing. But in any case, at least the perception was that the market structure led to that kind of outcome. And so they wanted to prevent that by putting this barrier in between the suppliers of alcohol and the retailers and final consumers. So that's the story, at least, that was told. What was the result of this? We have this three-tier system that is not inherently a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with having distributors. We have distributors in lots of industries. Uh, They are very good for purposes of combining different products in order to be able to distribute them and get economies of scale. So if you want large amounts of liquor or large amounts of other products to be transported at the same time and thereby thereby reduce your transportation costs, it's a pretty darn good system to have. And we have it in lots of other areas of industry as well, most notably food and soft drinks. So it's natural enough that you might expect that this kind of system would have emerged on its own even without the support of laws in the case of alcohol. But the efficiency of that system does depend upon the possibility for competition. You need the possibility for a supplier that has a distributor who has become unreliable. They've started to shirk. They've started not to meet all of their obligations for them to move to another, uh, another distributor or if that distributor has started to charge too much or demand too small at too low a price for the alcoholic products. Then again, the supplier can go to somebody else. You also need to be able to move on to somebody else if the distributor is doing things like not refrigerating your, your, your product properly. You also need the possibility of not just going to another distributor, but if you can't find any distributors who are going to do it right, you can either create your own distribution system or you could sell directly to consumers or directly to retailers. So the possibility of competition among distributors and the possibility of going around the distributors is what's going to assure that that system of distribution only occurs when it's actually operating efficiently. 
But instead, under the current system, these uh, distributors are guaranteed a position in the market. And by being given that guaranteed position, they're able to exploit it in a monopolistic fashion, and that allows them to raise the price of alcohol to final consumers. And in fact, it turns out that the markup is somewhere in the range of 18 to 25 percent. So we're talking about a pretty substantial chunk of the price of alcohol going to uh, the distributors. In addition, in many states, though uh, apparently not in my own, uh, they have uh, franchise protection laws, what they call franchise protection laws. And what these serve to do is essentially make it so that the contracts between suppliers and distributors of alcohol are no-escape contracts. It's extremely difficult to get out of that contract and move on to anybody else, even after the official term of the contract is ended. So even after the contract's supposed to be over, you have to, re- have to renew it. Allow me to give you a little bit of a dated cultural reference here. I realize that when I give this to my students, they no longer know what I'm talking about. But some of you may remember an ad for Roach Motels. You remember Roach Motels? And their ad said, you can check in, but you can't check out. All right. That's what uh, the franchise protection laws did in the case of supplier-distributor contracts. They said, make your contract with whoever you want, but you have to have a distributor. And once you do have a distributor, you're going to be stuck with that distributor for a very long time. If it's the case that that distributor is starting to shirk on their duties, not follow the terms of the contract, that doesn't allow you to terminate the contract as you normally would. It means you have to give them a specified period of time to bring their standards back up. And a court has to agree with you that, in fact, those... Uh, those standards have been violated. Furthermore, at the end of the contract, you have to renew the contract, even if you have your reasons for wanting to move on to another distributor. And so what that means is that you get very little competition among distributors. So you give the distributors the guaranteed position in the market, and then we have an additional layer of laws that makes it so that once you've picked out a distributor, you're essentially stuck with them for life, and that puts them in a position to be able to uh, violate the terms of the contract even more or raise the price, uh, be, excuse me, lower the price that they're willing to pay you for alcohol and so on, as well as to increase the size of their markup. Now, uh, what's the overall result of this? In terms of national market concentration, if you look at national market concentration, you'll find that from 1950 to today, we've had the number of distributors go from 6,000 to under 600. So we've had a really substantial shrinking of the distribution sector. And of course, not all of that reduction is attributable to the protective laws that are in place, but some of that consolidation surely is. And the result of that is that if you look at it at the national level, you'll, the top four wholesalers account for about 30% of alcohol sales. Now you might say, well, that's not very much, right? That doesn't sound much. You take your top four distributors and that's only 30%. But it turns out that that figure grossly overstates the amount of competition in the distribution sector because of the fact that many distributors only operate in certain regions of the country. They don't have national distribution, and yet they will be counted as part of the national numbers. So the result is is that in individual markets, you might only have one or two effective distributors, and yet at the national level have the appearance of lots of competition. As just one example, in Massachusetts, the top four wholesalers have 65.3% of the market. 43.5% of that is just the top two distributors. In California, there are just two distributors, Young's Market and Southern Wine and Spirits, which have 100% of the distilled spirit sales and 70% of wine sales. In Chicago, I'm told, there are really only two viable distributors of alcohol. So the result is, is for suppliers, they're finding a substantial restriction in the number of distributors that they can actually work with. 
What happens when you have distributors in that kind of privileged position? You're going to get what's called the double markup problem. You get a markup that happens at the level of the maker of the alcohol when they pass it on to the distributor. Then the distributor marks it up again when they pass it on to the retailer. And then you get another markup at the time that the retailer marks it up when they hand it off to the consumer. And again, the number ends up coming up to something between 18 and 25% markup. In addition, the power of distributors reduces the variety of alcohol products that you can get. How so? Well, if you think about it, distribution or distribution system makes most sense when you're able to achieve economies of scale. Making a bunch of small shipments or a bunch of small pickups is not in the interest of distributors in a privileged position. So what they will uh, tend to do often is to leave out the smaller niche brands because they realize that they can instead specialize in these larger brands – that they know that consumers will buy if they don't have the niche option and then only deliver those. And this puts the uh, the niche manufacturers in a difficult position. It's hard to find a distributor who's actually willing to take your product. So how would we go about reforming this? What are the politics of regulatory reform? The big thing to remember is that it's all about the distributors. They are those who, in the position of having most to lose from anything that threatens the status quo. They're relatively few in number, and that gives them, perhaps paradoxically, if you don't know public choice theory, it gives them a a greater amount of political clout because it's easier to organize them. It's easier for, for them to get together and pool their funds in order to oppose the laws they would be opposed to in favor of those they'd be in favor of. So once again, it comes down to a single word, as Michael Lerner said, the lobbyists. So how do they justify this? Because if you come before a legislature, you come before the public, and you're trying to defend your privileged position, which allows you to have inflated profits, it usually doesn't say, do to say, yes, we want this law because it's going to give us a special privileged position. It's going to inflate our profits, right? You have to come up with some kind of a better justification. So what do they normally say? Well, it's pretty easy to find out if you go to the website of any kind of a wholesalers or distributors uh, organization, you'll find that they spend an awful lot of time talking about what I call call fig leaf justifications. Fig leaf justifications mean they're the ones that are there to cover up the naughty bits. What kind of justifications do they give? It's always in terms of the public interest. They are constantly pointing to the need to have an easy means of taxing alcohol, the need to control quality, and of course, the need to protect children and minors. It's always about the children. And the odd result of this is that you have firms whose primary business is purveying alcoholic products having become the most vocal advocates of alcohol regulation and control. And, of course, the reason for that, we know, beneath the surface has to do with their economic interests because the fig leaf justifications really just don't hold much water. Take, for instance, this argument that we need to be able to tax alcohol, and by having this kind of bottleneck at the distributor level, it makes it easier for us to tax them. Well, that seems to make sense until you realize that we tax virtually every other product at the sales level. We have sales taxes in virtually every state. And we handle that at the retail level. We don't use that as a justification for every other product that we'd like to tax, saying that they must go through distributors and giving those distributors a privileged position. And moreover, if that's the way we did it, if we taxed alcohol at the retail level, it would also be more transparent. As it is under the current system, when the tax takes place at the distribution level, it's much more difficult for the final consumer to know how much of the price of his alcohol is actually going to the government and how much is actually going to people in the supply chain. 
I'll tell you the answer to that, by the way. It's about 25%. About 25% of what you pay for alcohol is, uh, is actually taxes. It's even more for that for distilled spirits. It's less than that for beer. What about this need to protect children? Again, this seems like a good justification. There are things that we don't want in the hands of children. We don't want children always being able to get their alcohol with, without any adult supervision whatsoever. But wait a minute. How do we handle that with other goods? There are other things that we don't want children to get their hands on pornography, tobacco. How do we handle those? Again, we handle that at the retail level. We let the person who is the final seller to the consumer check to make sure that that consumer is of an appropriate age to get the product. What we don't say is that any bookstore that wants to be able to get stack, stack Playboys into their counter has to go through a distributor first, that there must be a magazine distributor between the makers of Playboy or the publishers of Playboy and the final consumers. We let them handle that industrial arrangement any way that they want. And then at the final level of sale to the consumer, that's where we have the regulation that makes sure that children can't get a hold of it. So to summarize, thanks to the 21st Amendment, the booze has been freed, but not entirely, because we still have a burden of special interest regulation. And most of that regulation is masquerading in terms of protection of the public. But the result of this is that it makes the price of alcohol higher and it makes the quality and variety lower than it otherwise might be for us, the consumers of alcohol. Thank you, Glenn, and thank you for your introduction, Brandon. Uh, Direct shipping of wine is what I'm going to speak about. It is a small but important exception to the three-tier system, which Glenn described. And it's one that actually, because of changes in uh, the legal landscape and in the marketplace, actually threatens some of some of the underpinnings of the three-tier system itself. What I'd like to do is uh, tell you a little bit about the uh, policy issues surrounding a direct shipping of wine to consumers, talk about uh, some of the litigation, the legal landscape, and then touch briefly on how um, direct shipping of wine actually implicates uh, distribution of goods and services in other industries as well. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with, uh, with the topic, uh, direct shipping of wine refers to the ability of consumers to buy wine directly from a winery and have that wine shipped to them, thereby uh, p- bypassing the three-tier system. It started out uh, in the 1980s as a way for you know, a relatively small number of wine connoisseurs to get uh, their favorite wines from California. But in the 1990s, direct shipping really took off through uh, the growth of wine clubs, through the growth of the Internet, and through just the growth and the popularity of, of wines and the production of wines, it's, it's now the case that every state in the country has, um, has, has, has a winery. And the states uh, were looking for ways to help their producers. They liberalized their distribution laws, some of them, in order to have access to, to markets from other states. So as of about 2000, roughly half the states allowed for um, – direct shipping of wine from in-state wineries as well as from out-of-state wineries, so more or less free direct shipping of wine uh, from wineries to consumers. About half the states uh, prohibited uh, direct shipping of wine, but some of those states made an exception for in-state wineries. So if you were a New York winery, for example, you you could ship wine to New York consumers, but all other states wineries in other states could not do that. Now, if that last set, subset of states that created the, the landscape for a, a series of legal challenges, 
uh, wineries and consumers challenged these states' laws as violating the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, and they argued that uh, what these states were really doing was engaging in uh, sort of rank protectionism that's prohibited uh, by the Dormant Commerce Clause. Now, states, uh, joined by uh, the distributors and the wholesalers, um, argued that they had more or less plenary power to control the distribution of alcohol under the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, and they also um, engaged in some of the um, some of the fig leaf arguments, as Glenn described them, um, about um, the need to protect tax revenue and uh, protect minors from the, from the evils of alcohol. There were a series of court decisions uh, that were really all over the map. Some courts, um, uh, federal district courts in Michigan and New York, for example, upheld these laws um, as being permitted by the 21st Amendment. They gave a very broad interpretation to um, what the 21st Amendment was designed to do. Other states um, knocked down these laws um, as violating the Commerce Clause. Um, A Texas court, for example, uh, struck down the uh, the reasoning behind that law by writing, well, you know, people can become just as drunk on wines outside of Texas as they can on Texas law as they can on Texas wine, um, undercutting some of that analysis. So against this backdrop, uh, the Federal Trade Commission decided to do an analysis of some of the policy implications of direct shipping of wine. What is the effect on consumers, and is there anything to these justifications that the states and the wholesalers are putting up about taxation and um, you know, concerns about underage drinking. And what the FTC did was to design uh, an empirical economic study looking at the wine market in McLean, Virginia. McLean is an upscale market, so there should be you know, lots of wine, lots of varieties of wine available to consumers. Virginia at the time was a state that banned uh, direct shipping of wine, so you could get a real contrast um, between what was available in bricks-and-mortar retailers and what would be available over the Internet. And what the study find, found, not surprisingly, was that consumers could save money by shopping online. Depending on you know, the type of wine you bought uh, and how you decided to ship it and the quantity, consumers could save about 8 to 13% on a bottle of wine that cost more than $20 and up to 21% on a bottle of wine that cost more than $40. Now, interestingly enough, and this will be important for when we talk about the effects on underage drinking, cheaper bottles of wine were actually, less expensive bottles of wine were actually cheaper to buy uh, in the stores once you factored in shipping costs. Now, the other thing we looked at was the, um, was the impact on the variety of wines that were available. You know, bricks and mortar stores are, of course, limited in the amount of uh, types of wines that they can carry. For obvious, obviously, they have physical constraints, and for some of the reasons that Glenn described, they also have in some incentives to to lower the number of, of brands that they carry, whereas online people can get virtually limitless numbers of, uh, of varieties of wines. The FTC study um, confirmed this, this intuitive sense, um, found that in McLean, Virginia, um, people had access to 15% fewer types of wines than they could find online. Now, for somebody like me, who's not a, a real wine connoisseur, I'm perfectly happy if I have a choice of wines between a red wine and a white wine. That's great. I can get a wine in a bottle or in a box. That's terrific for me. But there are other people who are real you know, wine sophisticates um, who are willing to spend, you know, obviously, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars on the right bottle of wine. For them, there is a lot of consumer welfare in having uh, different varieties of wine available to them. And of course, uh, you know, it's much more convenient, or it can be, to buy wine online than actually having to go and visit a store. 
So on the other side of the equation, we took a, we took a look at what, um, what the state's arguments are. You know, is there anything to this notion of you know, needing to protect tax revenue and needing, needing to protect the children from, from online uh, wine distribution? And I guess to be, to be most charitable, I guess the argument that the states uh, were making was that, well, gosh, it's okay for us to allow an in-state winery to ship wine uh, to consumers because, you know, we have a hammer over them. You know, if they mess up and start shipping wine to kids, you know, we can revoke their licenses, we can shut them down. If we allow, you know, out-of-state wineries to do that, um, you know, who knows? We, we just won't be able to deter or detect that conduct quite as much. So, so th- that's the argument. At, at a hearing that the FTC held, um, former White House counsel Seaboyd uh, and Gray came in and testified. He'd been retained by the wholesalers, and he noted that he wanted his uh, daughter to buy as many books online from Amazon.com and read them as many as she could, but he did not want his teenage daughter to buy as much wine um, online as she could. So that, that's the argument. So what the FTC did was um, to look at the empirical evidence that was out there and also to do our own survey of state alcohol officials. And what we found were, again, not, not terribly surprisingly, that these concerns about underage drinking from direct shipment of wine were largely illusory. States had received no incidents of re- reports from irate parents noting that their kids had gotten drunk on Pinot Noir. There were no studies about you know, out-of-control keg parties where people were getting drunk on Chardonnay. It just didn't happen. And, you know, the reasons are, are intuitive, largely, which are that, you know, kids prefer beer and spirits to wine. They want instant gratification. They are price-sensitive, so they are not willing necessarily to pay that premium that you have to get by paying, by paying for shipping costs. Um, there were uh, a few instances of, of where uh, state alcohol officials had engaged in some stings, and those stings did show that it was possible for uh, minors to buy alcohol online. The um, age uh, verification systems that co- common carriers uh, had in place um, didn't always work, but there was no evidence of this actually happening in the marketplace. Taxes were the other big justification for it. Um, taxes certainly a legitimate concern for state governments, but there again, we found that there were less restrictive means by which states could, you know, legitimately, you know, tax tax alcohol, but also allow competition to flourish. Uh, New Hampshire was one state that had a robust um, direct shipping program, and what they did was to um, require any out-of-state winery that wanted to ship wine into New Hampshire had to get a permit, pay taxes. The system worked great. So it was against this backdrop that this um, direct shipping issue went to the Supreme Court in 2005. The Supreme Court uh, considered uh, two cases, one out of Michigan, in which uh, Michigan had prohibited um, all interstate direct shipping of wine, but allowed intrastate shipping of wine. Uh, New York was a little more subtle. They said that um, any winery could uh, ship wine directly to New York consumers, but if you were an out-of-state winery, you had to establish a physical presence in the state. So you had to establish a physical office in New York, then you could ship uh, to New York consumers, of course, no winery had actually had actually done that due to the cost of it. The um, prior to uh, the prior to this decision coming down in Granholm, the case of Granholm versus Heald, um, we had a sense in government that it was going to come down to uh, to Justice Kennedy because of the jurisprudence from some of the other justices, and uh, we felt good about where Justice Kennedy was going to come down on this one because Justice Kennedy has been accused at times of letting his personal policy fr- preferences influence his decision making process. Here, um, people who were favored direct shipping of wine thought um, that they had the, the better of the argument that Justice Kennedy's uh, 
personal preferences uh, lined up with uh, the free market view and, and also lined up with the, uh, with the style section of the New York Times. So people felt good about that. As it turned out, um, it was a 5-4 decision. The opinion was written by Justice Kennedy, and he, um, in his opinion, struck down uh, laws in both uh, New York and Michigan. Um, he found that uh, the laws uh, violated the Dormant Commerce Clause, that they facially violated against out-of-state uh, wineries burdening commerce, and in terms of the state's arguments about underage drinking and tax collection, he relied actually very heavily on the FTC's report to say that there really wasn't anything to them, and he said that if states wanted to discriminate, wanted to discriminate against interstate commerce, they had to provide much, a much better justification. There were two dissenting opinions in that case. One was written by Justice Thomas, who took a much a much broader view of what the 21st Amendment did. Um, in his view, the 21st Amendment gave states more or less plenary power over the distribution and control of alcohol. Um, I think his opinion, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not an unfair reading of the 21st Amendment, but I think it is divorced from the historical context of what the 21st Amendment which was really designed to do, which is to return the country to a pre-prohibition era. Um, there was also a separate dissenting opinion written by Justice Stevens, who uh, relied on his personal memory of um, that time period. He, <laughs> I, I'm not making this up. He, he noted he noted that uh, although younger uh, the younger generation might uh, view uh, alcohol as any other commodity, you know, his generation viewed alcohol as something very different. One of my um, one of my former colleagues at the FTC uh, refers to this dissent somewhat uncharitably, I think, as the Grandpa Simpson dissent. <laughs> well, we're now in a post-Granholm world, and um, unfortunately, Granholm has uh, settled the direct shipping issue about as much as uh, Roe v. Wade settled the abortion issue, although a few states did liberalize their laws uh, in response to uh, Granholm versus Heald. Um, states have come up with new and creative ways to try to restrict the distribution of alcohol and some would argue preserve the uh, monopolistic profits for the distributors. One set of restrictions involve what are called gallonage restrictions. These are basically production caps. And the idea is that it's okay for relatively smaller wineries um, to ship wine directly to consumers in your state. Um, and we want to give the smaller wineries an edge. But for larger wineries, we still want them to have to go through the three-tier distribution system. So, um, for example, um, Kentucky had a limit of um, 50,000 gallons. So wineries that produce less than 50,000 gallons an annually could ship directly to Kentucky consumers. Larger wineries could, could not. That uh, law was actually upheld by the court. The court found that it was uh, facially neutral and that there wasn't any evidence that it uh, discriminated against, uh, against wineries. Uh, last month, um, a court in Massachusetts took a different view. Massachusetts had a law that put that cap at 30,000 gallons. Um, in striking down that law, uh, Massachusetts actually relied on a fair amount of evidence that the law was actually designed to discriminate against out-of-state wineries. As it turns out, maybe not surprisingly, um, Massachusetts has no wineries that produce more than uh, 30,000 gallons. The one winery that did produce close to 30,000 gallons was a fruit winery, and Massachusetts exempted fruit wineries from, the, uh, from its cap. Um, 
there was also um, there was also some record evidence from the state senator sponsoring the bill who said that the bill was actually designed to help in-state wineries at the expense of out-of-state wineries. So that, that also helped the court reach its decision. Interestingly enough, for fans of, uh, if there still are any fans of Governor Romney, Governor Romney vetoed this bill, said that it was bad for consumers, and introduced a straight direct shipping bill, but he was overridden by, by his state legislature. Another set of restrictions involves um, uh, uh, whether retailers can ship directly to consumers. And this is an issue that actually does really challenge the, the entire three-tier system because if retailers are, aligned, are allowed to ship wine directly to consumers, you have to wonder about the integrity of the three-tier system in its entirety. Um, a court in Michigan has held that a state may not prohibit out-of-state retailers from shipping wine directly to consumers. A state in New York went exactly the opposite way and said that the 21st Amendment allows states to do that, that in fact the three-tier distribution system was blessed by the Supreme Court's decision in Gramhold. Um, there's a third case out of Texas in which uh, the court actually went a third way and said that you can't prohibit out-of-state retailers from shipping wine directly to consumers, but it's okay to force them to buy wine from Texas wholesalers. So it's not clear how that decision is going to hold up, hold up on appeal. Um, there are a whole series of other restrictions that um, legislatures have come up with, including face-to-face limits. So the idea being that you have to um, go physically to a winery, order wine from that winery, and only then can you have it shipped directly to you. Uh, this sort of restriction was struck down in Kentucky. It was actually upheld in a case out of Indiana with Judge Easterbrook, um, joined by Judge Posner. Uh, judge Posner is a very libertarian judge. He, um, he agreed that this um, res- type of restriction was, was, was valid. Um, right now, I think the court decisions are all over the place, in part because um, you have very little evidence about what the actual impact of these cases are. And you don't have a lot of evidence about what state legislatures actually intended. I think as legislatures and lawyers become a little more sophisticated about looking what about seeing what courts are actually interested in in the post-Granholm world, I think you'll see start, some of these court decisions start to actually um, have some congruence. I want to touch briefly, if I've got two minutes, on um, the potential impact that direct shipping has for other industries. Um, as part of the Federal Trade Commission's initiative, we looked at uh, the more broad issue of state regulation on commerce and whether state licensing regimes and uh, distributor laws can uh, discourage uh, discourage e-commerce. As it turns out, uh, you cannot buy a new car directly from a manufacturer. You have to go through a dealer. Many states have restrictions on your ability to get uh, legal advice, uh, for example, from a lawyer that resides in another state. Um, other states have uh, funeral director licenses that um, limit your ability to buy a casket um, over the Internet. Um, and these are just a few examples. So at this um, hearing at, 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 that we held at the FTC, we looked at this issue Little more comprehensively, little more comprehensively, to see whether the wine industry and the wine litigation could have an impact on some of these other industries, and I absolutely think it can, um, in part because courts are looking at the validity of state justifications for uh, restricting restricting out-of-state commerce, and they're looking very closely at whether states are able to exert some regulatory control over what happens outside of their borders. So I think what happens in the wine cases will be very important in other industries as well. I wanted to give you a sense of um, the type of evidence that we received at uh, the FTC's hearings. Um, 
looking at all of these industries, nobody wanted to defend restrictions on you know, e-commerce and distribution networks as a whole. But surprisingly enough, every representative from every industry thought that their own industry had some sort of unique properties to them that required, that required regulation. So here's a um, I'm going to read you some excerpts from some testimony. Here's, a, here's an excerpt from, the, um, from a wine wholesaler. I want to call attention to the one fact about wine that makes it different from all other commodities that will be discussed, that difference being that it is an alcoholic beverage. None of the other commodities and services being discussed here has, has been the subject of a constitutional amendment. Well, that sounds fair enough until you, until you hear from the auto dealers. The Internet cannot replace services provided by the auto dealers. We are not selling books, CDs, or wine, but a very sophisticated product, a sophisticated product that has over 10,000 moving parts. Well, okay, well, maybe auto dealers really are different until you, until you hear from the funeral industry. This is from a funeral dealer. A casket is not just a commodity, like a shirt or a pair of shoes. It is a product for a specific, special, specific event at a very sensitive and specific time. Well, then, of course, last but not least, we have, uh, we have the lawyers. I think it is essential to keep in mind that we aren't talking about contact lenses or caskets or wine bottles, that we're talking about something very different when we're talking about access to the justice system. Now, as a lawyer myself, I actually agree with this last comment. So the, the, the legal profession actually is different. You, do, you really should have to pay us slightly inflated rates um, to get our, the benefits of our expertise. Uh, with respect to wine, um, it is a unique product because there is a constitutional amendment. However, the principles of competition apply just as much to the wine industry as any other uh, segment of the economy. Consumers benefit from greater competition, and direct shipping can be a part of that. I see uh, Michael Lerner had to run out real quick. I was going to ask him if he could answer a lot of my email. Um, I wrote a, uh, a column earlier this week uh, drawing a lot of parallels between alcohol prohibition and, and drug prohibition. And when you talk to sort of mainstream Republicans they'll sort of uh, who support the drug war, they'll say, you know, there's important distinctions to be made. Uh, but when you talk to some of the more kind of hardcore drug war- warriors, people like William Bennett, uh, Karen Tandy, John Walters, they actually argue that alcohol prohibition was a resounding success uh, and that it's uh, too bad that we repealed it. Uh, so I was glad to hear uh, Mr. Lerner today, and I look forward to reading his book. Um, one of the uh, Another humorous uh, response to the column I got this week was from the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which I actually didn't know still existed. Um, and the, the, uh, the quote uh, that they put in the email was, the WCTU does not plan to have any special observance this Friday. It is a very sad day for us. Um, I, had to resist the, the, I had to resist the temptation to reply um, that if it makes them feel any better, I'd offer a toast for them tonight. But, um, <laughs> So uh, despite the arguments of people like William Bennett and John Walters and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, we're not going to go back to prohibition. Uh, There's not going to be another federal ban uh, on alcohol uh, consumption or production or distribution. Um, But I do would argue that we are sort of approaching what you might call uh, prohibition light or a neo-prohibition. And what's happening is uh, particularly at the state level, um, you're seeing a lot of sort of nibbling around the edges uh, people that are, are, are passing laws and regulations that make it more difficult to enjoy alcohol in a, in a, a social setting. Um, 
And I think there are two areas where they're really sort of pushing a lot of these policies, and they're very smart about it because these two areas are, are areas where it's, sort of, it's difficult to take the opposing position. Uh, and the two areas are underage drinking and drunk driving. Um, now, you know, most of us would probably don't support the idea of, of uh, unsupervised high school keggers or, or people stumbling into their cars uh, after a night of drinking. Um, but the problem is the proposals that a lot of these the neo-prohibitionists are pushing uh, are uh, – Blanket proposals. They're proposals that are deliberately written with as wide a scope, as wide a net as possible. And what they end up doing is is having a significant effect on social drinking. Um, I'll start with underage drinking. Uh, one of the underage drinking is is always trotted out as a reason why we need to put restrictions on alcohol advertising. Um, uh, in the 90s, there was a, a trend in a lot of cities to uh, ban alcohol, adver- alcohol advertising on billboards. Um, and the first uh, s- uh, blanket ban uh, on alcohol advertising went up to the Supreme Court and was actually struck down. Uh, but the Supreme Court did allow uh, room for cities to uh, have targeted bans on billboards. So billboards that could be sort of seen within uh, view of a, uh, an elementary school, for example, could be banned. Well, of course, what they ended up doing then uh, is passing uh, these targeted bans that uh, were so broad they ended up uh, covering the whole city. Uh, For example, uh, the city of Oakland passed an ordinance prohibiting alcohol advertising uh, within three blocks of any recreation center, church, daycare facility, public housing facility, or public school. Uh, The ordinance left only 70 of the city's 1,450 billboards available for alcohol advertising. Um, Another uh, favorite target of the neo-prohibition movement uh, is magazines and uh, television shows. Uh, and right now, the, the alcohol industry has a um, self-imposed restriction that if a, uh, a, a magazine or a TV show has, I believe it's more than, a, uh, more than 30% um, of its audience is underage, uh, there's sort of a voluntary restriction on advertising in those, those medium. Um, a lot of the uh, neo-prohibition groups actually want the, to make that number quite a bit uh, lower. They want it to go down to 20 or 15%. Uh, which would basically mean that alcohol advertising would be restricted to magazines like Playboy and Modern Maturity. Um, if you if you actually look at magazines that have a, uh, a reader, an underage readership somewhere in the 20 to 25 percent range, uh, you're going to get magazines like uh, Sports Illustrated, TV Guide. Uh, if you look at television shows, you're going to get shows like Friends and Seinfeld. Uh, and what I think what it illustrates is these sort of age-targeted advertising restrictions. It makes it you, you can't really sort of restrict um, advertising to 18 or 19-year-olds without also restricting advertising to you know just about everyone under 30. Um, another uh, popular uh, target of the neo-prohibition group is uh, alcohol that tastes good. Um, alcohol, uh, one of the the the, the alcopops uh, is the sort of derogatory term they've come up for uh, come up with for uh, alcohol companies that are selling sort of fruit flavored um, alcohol drinks, uh, and then they they come up with this term because they say that anytime you make alcohol taste good, you're obviously appealing to children in somehow some way, uh, because apparently adults only like their alcohol bitter. Um, the state of Utah has actually banned alcohol pops altogether. Um, groups like the Center for Science and the Public Interest, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, want either outright bans or severe restrictions on, on advertising and, and marketing of them. Uh, one of my favorite stories of this is um, one of my favorite restaurants uh, in the D.C. area is a restaurant called uh, Rustico. Uh, and a couple years ago, they made national news. Uh, they, they, they're big into beer, uh, and they have sort of the, the beer equivalent of a sommelier, and they, they pair beer with different dishes. Um, and the, the chef uh, one time came in. It was a hot August D.C. day, uh, and 
wanted a uh, kind of a fruity frambois lambic beer. So he takes this, this raspberry beer. Uh, it's room temperature, so he, deci- he decides to put it in the freezer to cool it off. He forgot about it, <clears throat> came back a couple hours later, and it had frozen solid. We sort of broke the glass around it, and he had this sort of delicious chunk of icy beer deliciousness um, and sort of had this eureka moment uh, and put together sort of every frat guy's dream, which is frozen beer on a stick. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it got him national attention. He made uh, all the uh, national media. And, of course, immediately the Virginia, Virginia Alcohol Beverage Control steps in, uh, they dusted off a, a post-prohibition law saying that uh, I think it was you, you had to either serve alcohol in its original container or um, serve it shortly after pouring it out of its original container. Now, that was sort of the, the, the black letter law, but the kind of the, what they told the media was this idea that any time you make alcohol interesting or, or tasty, uh, you're sort of intrinsically appealing to underage drinkers and children. Um, there was a subsequent uh, media sort of uh, um, storm after that, that that they now had to take these delicious fruity drinks off the menu. Um, and they ended up compromising. And as I, best I can tell, the compromise was that uh, Rustico can now sell the drinks, but they can't advertise them. So now that you know, you can go to Rustico and, and give them the secret handshake, and um, they'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll sell you uh, one of these drinks, although it's, I think they only sell them in the summer. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, I digress a little. Um, the other, the other uh, major sort of uh, public policy uh, proposal that's pushed um, and that they sort of tried out underage drinking as a, a justification for is raising excise taxes on alcohol. Um, and the thinking, of course, is that <clears throat> um, teenagers are of limited means, so if you raise taxes on alcohol, uh, they'll be able to buy less of it. Um, although I guess if any parents have a teenager, uh, the idea that uh, if you make uh, something that they want cost more, uh, they'll want it less is probably a little counterintuitive. Um, designer jeans, for example. Um, but actually, um, one of the, the there's a National Academy of Sciences study that came out that was really pushing this idea that we need to cut down on underage drinking uh, by raising excise taxes. And if I can find it in here, um, but the very same study. <clears throat> um, conceded um, that, the piece, that the people uh, most likely to change their habits because of higher taxes uh, weren't necessarily teenagers. They would sort of go down to the next level of alcohol, the next cheapest level. Um, but actually, it would be moderate and social drinkers or people that consume alcohol responsibly. And the direct quote is, uh, quote, the most cost-effective strategy to re- reduce underage drinking includes policies that produce their main effects not on underage drinking, but rather on the overall level of drinking in the population. Um, so, again, you have a policy that's sort of justified on this idea that we need to stop underage drinking, uh, but that ends up being so broad and so blanket that it, its, its main effect is going to cut down on social drinking or that people who actually are drinking responsibly. Um, the, the second area, of course, is drunk driving. <clears throat> um, and, of course, nobody uh, wants to take the position of defending drunk driving. Um, but I would argue that the, the drunk driving laws we have passed have become so broad and so sweeping um, that they're actually – a, making the roads more dangerous, uh, and B, significantly cutting down on, on social drinking. Um, I have another quote here. Uh, a couple years ago, the uh, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and Mothers Against Drunk Driving launched this uh, new campaign that was called You Drink, You Drive, You Lose. Um, and I think that it's significant, uh, the, the motto that they, they trotted out for that, because suddenly we've gone from uh, don't drive drunk to don't drink and drive. Um, and let me find this quote um, they brought out a 
I can't find it now. Uh, well, anyway, they brought out a, a police chief, um, a, the head of the National Association of Police Chiefs, uh, at this press conference. And I, I don't have the direct quote, but the gist of his quote was, um, what the message we're sending today is that if you have a drink in a bar and you leave and get into your car, we're going to get you or we're going to pull you over. Um, and it's a very significant shift um, that we've gone from uh, you should not be drunk and, and out of control when you get behind the wheel to you shouldn't have anything to drink at all before you get behind the wheel. Um, now, you combine that with um, some, uh, some other interesting decisions of late, and actually one comes to mind is the um, Massachusetts Supreme Court just last week uh, said that uh, – Driver, driving companies or taxi companies can be held liable for um, what happens to their customers after they get out of the, the cab. Uh, in this case, they had um, it was a bachelor party, and the, the cab had sort of driven them around, and, and the guys all got drunk. And they take them back. The, the company took them back to a bar and dropped them off. Uh, one of these guys then went to his car, got into his car, got into an accident, and, and killed someone. Um, but instead of holding just the driver responsible, uh, the, the, the family of the victim wanted to sue the the, the company as well, and it strikes me as another example of one of these um, uh, policies that's sort of aimed at stopping people from drinking. I mean, you're going after this this company that is actually doing the right thing and driving drunks around so they're not getting on the road, uh, but it's going to raise the liability so far that is, if this case gets through, um, that, you know, legitimate taxi companies are going to, uh, they're going to be much more careful about uh, who they drive around. Um, and, the, you know, the people that they're going to avoid now are the very people that we want using taxi companies instead of getting into their cars. Um, the, the big thing with DWI was uh, the switch from 0.10 to 0.08. Uh, for a long time, the, the minimum drinking age in this country was 0.10. If you're pulled over and you're over 0.10, it's automatically, uh, uh, per se, you're guilty of, uh, of drunk driving. Um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and NHTSA and some of the other groups launched this national campaign to lower that minimum age with the federal law to 0.08. The problem is that uh, there's really no significant impairment between 0.08 and 0.10. And in fact, most of the the research, academic research, confirms this. Um, Two-thirds of alcohol-related fatalities involve blood alcohol levels of 0.14 or above, and the the average is actually 0.17. So Lowering the, the minimum threshold from 0.10 to 0.08 is a little like lowering the speed limit from 65 to 60 to catch people who are driving 100 miles an hour. Uh, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you combine that with the fact that they're, they're, the, they, the way they wanted to enforce this new law, this new 0.08 law, uh, with, these, with these random um, roadblocks, the sobriety checkpoints uh, that you see a lot of, uh, see, read a lot about. The thing about these roadblocks is that they are sort of by definition or by their very existence, uh, they're designed to catch people who aren't driving uh, erratically enough to be pulled over by conventional means. Um, And so when you set up these roadblocks, you take a lot of the police manpower off the streets and off the patrols, and you're putting them at these checkpoints, which um, I've been following this for for quite a while now. Uh, When you read local newspapers, they'll write a report about what happened at the Memorial Day checkpoint or the Labor Day checkpoint. Uh, And what you end up finding is they issued, you know, 400 citations, and usually about one to five, sometimes as high as 10% of them are actually related to uh, driving under the influence. Uh, the majority of the rest of the infractions are things like, uh, you know, an improperly uh, affixed uh, registration sticker or, um, you know, uh, uh, improper child restraint or a lot of these sort of petty violations, which actually end up being revenue generators for the, for the local police department um, or for the, the city. Um, well... <clears throat> 
So after the after the uh, the the point oh eight passed. Um, then NHTSA and MAD pushed this idea of setting up these roadblocks, and they went state to state and tried to get each state to approve of these roadblocks. And what we saw is, is, is sort of interesting. Uh, from 1980 to about 2000, uh, when MAD was um, focusing a lot on public relations, and, and I, I criticize MAD a lot, but one thing they really did do is uh, defeat the notion that it's acceptable to, to get plastered at a bar and then hop in your car and drive home. Um, that public consciousness about that really did change. And as a consequence, you know, drunk driving deaths – plummeted uh, over the 20-year the period between 1980 and 2000. Um, they dropped by uh, about 70 percent, which is pretty significant. Um, what's interesting, though, is after they passed point oh eight, a lot of people predicted uh, that we might actually see drunk driving fatalities start to go up again. And the reason, as I explained earlier, is that you're setting up these patrols, particularly on, on um, holiday weekends when there are going to be a lot of uh, people on the roads and a lot of people drinking. Uh, you're taking all this police power and you're putting them on this roadblock <clears throat> that's one, designed to catch people who, who aren't driving erratically enough to be caught by other means, but also are heavily advertised. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, aspects of these roadblocks is they're heavily advertised in local newspapers. Well, if I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drunk or if I know I'm going to go out and get plastered tonight and then try to drive home, um, you know, you, you know how to find where these roadblocks are going to be and you know how to avoid them. Um, what ends up happening is the, the, the heavy um, pu- uh, publicity surrounding the roadblocks does tend to people to, to drink a little less before they go out. Um, but the, the, the sort of the heavy drinkers, the alcoholics, the people who really are a threat on the road, know how to look up in the newspaper and find where the roadblocks are going to be and know how to drive around them. And what's, what we actually found is starting in 2003, after a, a two, two decades of decline, uh, drunk driving deaths actually started inching back upward again. And what's particularly interesting is they, they, the increase was driven mostly in states uh, that had implemented the roadblocks. In states that had not implemented roadblocks, uh, fatalities either continued declining or had sort of leveled off. <clears throat> um, a lot of you may have read uh, the, the latest um, in, in this kind of uh, the, this DWI madness is pre- preemptive DWIs. Uh, we had this at, out in Fairfax, uh, Virginia, a couple years ago, and they're still doing it in Texas, I understand. Uh, but they're sending um, uh, police officers or people from alcohol control out into bars uh, and giving people breath tests in bars. And if you um, are above the threshold for driving in the bar, they'll actually arrest you for pu- public intoxication. Um, now, the charge is public drunkenness, but when uh, it hits the newspaper and everybody goes crazy, they always interview you know, the local police chief or somebody from alcohol control, and the response is always that this is a drunk driving initiative. Um, so it's, it's essentially preemptively arresting people from drunk, for, for drunk driving. Uh, and in fact, the quote from the Fairfax police chief when this became a big issue locally uh, was he said, quote, you can't be drunk in a bar, uh, was, was his, uh, his response. Um, one of my favorite, um, actually, sto- uh, illustrations of all this is there's a guy in Pennsylvania named Keith Emmerich. Uh, this happened a couple of years ago. Uh, and Mr. Emmerich went to the hospital. He went to the emergency room because uh, he was having some heart palpitations. And during the course of his back and forth with the emergency room doctor, he mentioned to the doctor that the doctor asked if he, if he drank alcohol. And, and Emmerich said, yes, he did. And the doctor said, how much? And Emmerich said, I, I drink about a six-pack a day. He's like, I get home from work, and I, I sit down on my couch, and I drink a six-pack of beer. Well, Pennsylvania has an interesting law that, requires doctors to report to the Department of Transportation uh, any condition that a patient may have that would make them a threat to the highway or a threat on the highway. And this uh, doctor interpreted Mr. Emmerich's uh, alcohol habit uh, as making – this law was directed at, you know, people who are epileptic or people who black out. Um, 
he interpreted Mr. Amateur's problem as a uh, potentially making him a potential threat on the roads, even though there's no evidence he had ever driven drunk. Um, he had no, I think he had one DWI about 30 years earlier, uh, but nothing recent. Um, and the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation revoked uh, Mr. Emmerich's license and told him he had to prove to them that he didn't drive drunk in order for him to get his license back, which, of course, is impossible. Um, it was interesting. I read about the story, and I thought it was, it was fascinating, and I called the uh, Pennsylvania Medical Association, the Pennsylvania branch of the American Medical Association. Um, some of you might know the American Medical Association is very much part of this kind of neo-prohibition movement. They've taken some, some pretty, um, uh, I would say, outrageous, some would say courageous, I guess, stands uh, on, on alcohol. Um, and this seemed to me like a pretty cut-and-dry case if you're a doctor or if you're a group representing doctors, which is this is a pretty significant infringement on doctor-patient privilege. I mean, if I, there's a chance that my doctor, I could lose my license if I tell my doctor how much I drink. Um, I'm not going to tell him how much I drink, and he's not going to be able to make an accurate diagnosis. Um, to my surprise, the, the representative from the Pennsylvania AMA uh, was completely in support of this law and completely su- in support of the way the doctor and the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Department of Transportation had interpreted it. And his justification was that, you know, drunk driving is a, a serious threat to public safety and we have to do everything we can to prevent it, um, which I, I thought was, was pretty astounding, actually. Um, let me... Just a couple of other interesting laws. Uh, Washington State, uh, a couple years ago, the legislature passed a law and the governor signed it, instructing prosecutors in DWI cases to consider the evidence in a light most favorable to the prosecution, uh, which is sort of an, an interesting uh, turning of the uh, presumption of innocence on its head. That, that was actually struck down uh, in federal court, but the fact that the legislators thought it was a good idea and voted into the law just is, is amazing. Um, a couple of other states, uh, New Mexico um, passed a law, which I think Governor Richardson uh, sort of uh, let it die without either signing it or vetoing it. But they, um, MAD's latest kick is they want anyone who's um, convicted of a DWI on your first offense uh, for the rest of your life, then you're going to have to buy one of these ignition interlock devices, which is, costs about $1,000, and they put it in your car, and there's a straw uh, that you have to blow into to start your car. Uh, you have to basically pass a breathalyzer test to start your car. Uh, and then, and, and how this uh, affects or how this improves highway safety, I'm not sure. But you have to continue blowing in it every f- 10 to 15 minutes as you're driving, um, which is absurd. I, I, I just sort of picture all these people sort of driving and, and trying to blow into a straw while they're driving down the interstate. I, I don't see how it's going to make the roads a lot safer. Um, but whatever, I, I, you know, it's sort of if you have a repeat offender, it's sort of understandable that maybe you would want somebody to, to have to pass a test to, to start the car initially. Um, but MAD wants it for first-time offenders, which I think is a little ridiculous, particularly with the .08 stuff that I talked about earlier. But New Mexico actually took it one further and passed a law saying every car in the state within five years was going to have, that was sold was going to have to include one of these devices. Um, now, again, it didn't make it into law. Uh, Richardson didn't sign it. But the fact that it, you know, two houses uh, of a state's legislature thought this was a good idea, uh, you know, it was absurd. I mean, you could sort of call it the New Mexico uh, buys all of its cars from Arizona Act, because I don't think anybody would, uh, would actually buy a car from Arizona. But um, So, uh, how much, do I have some time? Okay. Um, finally, I just want to get into a little bit, um, very quickly, the neo-prohibition movement, sort of who's behind all of this. Um, and my favorite whipping boy in the alcohol, or actually in sort of the whole public health uh, debate in general, is the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is this uh, $5 billion endowment uh, in New Jersey. And um, I, I, when I was at Cato, I covered alcohol policy and I covered um, obesity also, which was a big, big issue at the time, uh, no pun intended. Um, and what I, what I always found interesting is Robert Wood Johnson, it's a $5 billion endowment. They fund dozens and dozens and dozens of studies. 
And I've yet to find a single study that they've funded or, or published um, that doesn't come to the conclusion that X is a public health crisis and we need less individual freedom and more government regulation to take care of it. Um, and uh, this is particularly interesting with alcohol because most non-Robert Wood Johnson Foundation studies find that moderate consumption of alcohol has some enormous health benefits, and which I'll get to in, in just a second. Um, but I was at a uh, – this is just kind of a funny story. I was at a Robert Wood Johnson uh, event a couple years ago, which was an obesity summit that they did with ABC News. And it was this, you know, we need to tackle obesity. This is an urgent problem. And the keynote was given by the president uh, of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And she said something that really struck me. Um, she said this is too urgent of a problem. She said we need to act ahead of the science. Uh, re- referring to, to legislation and regulations that we need to be passed. And basically she was saying, we can't wait for these studies to be done. This is such a horrible problem. We need to just pass regulation right now. Um, well, if you're familiar with the obesity debate, at the time the people were saying that uh, f- like 400,000 people a year were dying because of obesity. Um, and a, a CDC-funded study later uh, put that number uh, at about 110,000. And actually at 15,000, if you account for the fact that being mildly overweight actually has a protective effect, um, so this sort of telling even non-obese people, just overweight people that they need to go out on a diet may actually be doing more harm than good. Um, so I, I thought that was significant that she said we need to act ahead of the science, um, and then the, the, the science ended up sort of proving that she was overstating her case. Um, they're still pr- pushing a lot of those policies, which I guess now she would say we need to act in spite of the science. Um, let's see. I guess I'll end. Um, I talked about quickly about the, the uh, benefits of, of alcohol consumption. I just want to read a quote, and I think this is a good quote for us to go um, celebrate on. Um, it, the, the, the sort of nefarious thing about I mean, all, as we're in a libertarian building, so we're going to argue that, uh, you know, most regulations are, are bad uh, and that they, they cost um, – uh, you know, they cost money, they, they in, uh, inhibit uh, individual freedom. But I think that, that these alcohol regulations that extend to social drinking, that really cut down on modern drinking and social drinking and discourage people who are drinking responsibly um, are actually doing harm uh, because of all these studies showing that uh, moderate consumption of alcohol has these enormous uh, health, uh, health benefits. Um, so I want to quote very quickly uh, from my study, um, but actually the study is, is, is talking about a, an article that came in the New York, uh, in the New York Times uh, reporter, the science reporter Abigail Zuger, and she was sort of summarizing uh, all this, all the data on uh, on alcohol and the health benefits of alcohol. Uh, and what she said was, um, Zuger uh, summarized dozens of studies on alcohol and human health, including large population studies of 80,000 American women, thousands of Danish men, and more than 100,000 adults in California. Uh, Zuger writes, "Quote." A drink or two a day of wine, beer, or liquor is, experts say, often the single best non-prescription way to prevent heart attacks, better than a low-fat diet or weight loss, better than vigorous exercise. Moderate drinking can also help prevent strokes, amputated limbs, and dementia. Uh, According to Dr. Curtis Ellison, a professor of medicine and public health at the Boston University School of Medicine, the the science supporting the protective role of alcohol is indisputable. No one questions it anymore. There have been hundreds of studies, all of them consistent. So with that, um, I say we go celebrate. <laughs> uh, we have time for just a couple questions. Uh, again, if you don't mind, please wait till the microphones get to you. And please do speak into them so everybody can hear you. Uh, question right there, sir. I'd like to uh, point out, uh, I, mean, I, I learned about this 
war against liquor, which is the prohibition about it just recently because I came to this country in 1970 and I wasn't familiar with all this, so it was a very interesting presentation. Uh, based on that and many other things that go on, war on drugs and war on terrorism and so on, I mean, we are always at war with something uh, in this country. Uh, it seems to me that we really don't believe in free market and we still continue to use that word because we, we are constantly tinkering and restricting the free market. In my opinion, the mar market system should really reduce alcohol abuse as well as drug abuse and so on, but I guess nobody seems to think that way. And finally, uh, based on the law enforcement system, and as the gentleman pointed out, and also earlier, uh, the way we are creating laws and enforcing them, it seems like we are Talibanizing the American law enforcement system, which is really sad, and it's really, and I hope there are ways to end this kind of a charade. Um, I, I, at some point, I heard somebody say that the difference between uh, libertarians and everyone else is that everyone says they're in favor of freedom and libertarians really mean it. Uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of my reaction there is uh, Americans love to talk about uh, the freedoms that we have relative to other countries. And then sometimes it turns out surprisingly that uh, in many respects, we're not as free as they are in a lot of other countries. And I'd say that uh, prohibition of various forms, whether it's alcohol, drugs, prostitution, whatever, um, all of these are uh, among the worst offenders in terms of the reduction of our liberties. Yes, sir. Uh, just one second, if you wouldn't mind waiting for I'm trying to find out. Uh, you said about the liquor, you know, the liquor consumption helps, you know, supposed to be healthy and reducing the heart attack. Isn't it true that uh, high antioxidant juices can have the same effect as liquor, or is there something unique to liquor in reducing the danger of heart attack, strokes, diabetes at all, uh, or, or something that, in the alcohol that actually reduces the effect? For example, I heard you know the what causes. Reduction in heart attacks in wine, for example, is the resveterol in the wine. But don't you get the same thing in grape juice or alcohol? Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, I think from what I understand, and, and I'm not completely up to date on the research. Uh, probably, I was most knowledgeable about it when this paper came out. But wine is sort of a step above beer and alcohol. But that in general, all alcohol, if, if moderately cons consumed, which I think is about two drinks a day for men and one drink for women, uh, there are protective health effects beyond just sort of the the, the antioxidants in, in alcohol and beer. I mean, in the fact that, that liquor is included, which generally doesn't have antioxidants, I think there's something unique about alcohol that, that uh, does have some protective effects when it's consumed in moderation. Um, but I'm not a, a scientist, so I can't uh, probably explain the physiology of it. Any other uh, quick questions? Uh, right here. I have uh, actually two questions, a, a question and a follow-up question. If somebody could give me the answer, <clears throat> actually a follow-up comment. Uh, the question is, uh, how much alcohol does one need to drink to have the smell of alcohol on their breath? <laughs> does anybody know the answer? I've, I, uh, it depends on what you're talking about. I, I've seen. Um, well, I mean, that somebody could detect that you were drinking. Yeah, well, it depends on that somebody is is your wife or a police officer, I guess. Well, um, let's say, <laughs> say a well a well trained a well trained nurse. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't answer that. Uh, well, the comment is that uh, it's kind of interesting because if you have the smell of alcohol on your breath coming into the emergency room to take care of a patient, you could be reported to the medical uh, uh, 
staff office and actually lose your privileges at a hospital, and then, and then as a result of that, be turned into the Board of Medicine and lose your license for practicing uh, medicine. Now, I don't think you, could, you have to be at a .04 level of alcohol to have smell on your breath. Mm-hmm. I think it would be much less than that, which would be totally unimpaired. Versus if I ate a turkey sandwich, I'd probably more be more impaired than I would be with a .04 level. Or if I had a chamomile tea before I came to, to work, I'd probably be more impaired as a result of the sleepiness that I would have. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there are... Kind of interesting in terms of the... the we, we, uh, we have a very restrictive view of the use of alcohol. We think it's bad. Well, yeah, I mean, there were studies that shown that everything from talking on a cell phone to eating to... Uh, uh, there, there are all sorts of things that, that offer a level of distraction for drivers higher than point, that, that being at 0.08 level of intoxication. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the most distracting uh, is having children in the back seat of the car. Um, so there are all sorts of things that, that, that distract you more than this sort of arbitrary 0.08 that, that we came up with in, in the late 90s. I'd like to add to that that uh, blood alcohol content readings from uh, breathalyzers and similar machines are very unreliable. They have a pretty high uh, high margin of error, and it turns out there are all kinds of things that can cause you to uh, blow a uh, blow a number that indicates that you've been drinking alcohol that aren't even alcohol. For instance, I read that you could that eating bread could cause you to blow a .04 which is half of what you need to get to the .08 in order to be considered legally drunk. So the lower you make that limit, uh, the, more we, the more we reduce what that limit is to be considered legally drunk, the more likely you're going to be capturing some people who really aren't impaired. Yeah, there, there have been a number of cases recently where um, DWI defense attorneys have, have asked the courts to force the manufacturers of these breath machines to turn over their um, data, their, their, their algorithms, and also their sort of um, margin of error and all the sort of internal stuff. They've all declined. And in, in, in one case, actually, a, a Florida judge threw out every DWI case that had come through his court in the last year. Uh, because they wouldn't turn over the data. And I, I mean, I think it's a legitimate request. I mean, they say it's a, it's a trade secret, but, I mean, if there is a high margin of error, and, I mean, the difference between point, point, uh, point eight one and point seven nine, I mean, it, it can significantly affect your life. I mean, a lot of people get fired when they get a DWI. Uh, so it is, it is uh, it, there is a very high margin of error. I'd actually include, encourage people to do, poke around on the Internet because there's some um, very interesting data on that. Okay, unfortunately, we're out of time now. Please uh, join me again in thanking all of our speakers today. Um, just, a, just a quick note about the reception before you head up. Uh, there are actually going to be two bars up there. The first bar you hit at the top of the stairs is beer and wine only. If you continue into the Winter Garden past the, the palm trees, we're going to have a, a bar there where we're serving vintage cocktails prepared by uh, our bar experts, Jacob Greer and Jeff Morgenthau. Uh, and there'll be a menu as you leave uh, the auditorium describing what these vintage cocktails are. And finally, I'd also like to thank uh, the Distilled Spir- I'm sorry, the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States and the Wine Institute for providing the beverages tonight.